Hello, and welcome to Shoot the Shit, a podcast about buggy. The idea for this podcast came about like so many other great ideas in the history of Carnegie Mellon University. It was late one night at William Penn Tavern, and a group of us were sitting around talking about buggy and how many great characters and stories there were in the sport. And wouldn't it be great if we could record those stories and put them out and share them with the community? Well, this is an attempt to do just that. My name is Will Weiner, and I'm going to be your host. I've had the privilege of interviewing some of the biggest movers, shakers, and behind-the-scenes characters who have shaped Buggy into what it is today. So I ask that you sit back, relax, and enjoy as we shoot the shit. We're kicking off the podcast by speaking to someone whose name is synonymous with Buggy. That man is Tom Wood, the Buggy historian. Tom has been involved with the sport for over 50 years. I sat down with him and had a wide-ranging conversation on topics from his start as a student all the way up till now, sharing anecdotes and reflections on how the sport has evolved as we head into this, its 100th year. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us tonight, Tom. Uh, If you'd like to just give a little bit of an intro on, you know, what it is exactly your role is as Buggy Historian and uh, how kind of this all got started. Well, thank you. It's a real honor to be with you, Will. Really, I don't know how to summarize what it is being a buggy historian. I guess it's a buggy know-it-all. I've been fascinated with buggy since my freshman year in 1968-69. Part of the interest was the fact that it was such a secret part of my fraternity. So having known that, everybody wanted to know what it was all about. So me and a few other Pledge brothers sought to find find out everything we could about buggy. And in that, we just got in way over our heads. Because unfortunately, our fraternity was in conflict at the time, and they were more than willing to let the pledges do more work than they probably should have ever done in the past. So we were involved from the very beginning, so I got my hands dirty real quick. And from that point, I was, as a youngster, very interested in baseball. Back then, even analytics were important. I know it becomes a hot topic today, but you know, I always study statistics. And one of the things that we were able to do with Buggy was to go out there and look at various comparisons between other organizations. I happened to own the only stopwatch in the organization, so that got me involved in measuring things be it either hill times, free rolls, things like that to compare teams against teams. And I also keep uh, copious notes. And so I put together notebooks full of data. And unfortunately, data is one of the things which leads you to determine what things are happening more effectively than others. And so from that, we did an awful lot of research and figured out ways that we could improve push times, pre-roll times, and it was a very interesting process. But it's not, I'm not talking about just me, but I happen to be a historian for the, for the chapter. I sent you a little blurb today showing you know, some of the stuff that I just give to my fraternity on an annual basis to bring them up to speed with where Buggy is at the moment. And so that includes a history of what the times are, who's pushing, who's pushed in the past, and what have you. I took a look at that. It's some fascinating material. And is that stuff, because you've been at this since late 60s, yeah. Have you been just tracking that and kind of keeping uh, these notes and documents kind of together before, you know, the advent of cloud and stuff like that? Or has that process been? Well, it still goes into my handwritten notebooks, of which I have, you know, many. And that's one of the nice things about having a notebook is I don't need to worry about people uh, skimming my information. I I mean, I have to worry about fires, but other than that, we're we're pretty much safe. Great. Um, I I am interested in those early days. You know, you talked a lot about sort of the, the secrecy within buggy as a whole but as you were kind of entering it you know what were your first impressions when you came on to campus had you known a lot about the sport 
uh, or, or what kind of did you initially think when people started kind of giving you the, the download about what Buggy was? Well, honestly, Buggy was one of the farthest things from my mind. I had never heard of Buggy before I came on campus. I'd never visited the campus before I arrived on campus. So I lived in Boss Hall. Uh, my roommate, Bill Rupert, was uh, he pledged PICA, and he was, they were looking for more pledges. He was a good friend of mine, and so I joined. And that's when we, both him and I, were the ones that were very interested in the, the secrecy of the sport. And we would, you know, we would skulk around because Pike at the time was very secretive. Nobody got into the buggy room. It was always under lock and key. And um, Bill and I would hover around doors trying to listen to things that might be happening. And I know today they'd probably, you know, kill us for doing something like that. But the fact of the matter was we just developed a very keen interest in some of the older brothers saw that we were interested, and they put us to work. First sanding, because you had to sand the buggies before you'd paint them. And, of course, there were no precautions taken back then. We didn't have any, no respirators or thing like, things like that. What you had was sandpaper and a lot of uh, hard work and effort. But, I mean, the paint jobs were phenomenal back then, even for, you know, Pika right now, they don't really pride themselves on, you know, good paint jobs or... Black is it. That's basically their... Right. Everything is... All, all black, everything uh, kind of carries that sort of sense of secrecy or, or what have you. It does. And it didn't used to be that way. Our buggies would show up red or my first year, they were... The one buggy was purple and uh, they were very nicely done. Beautiful. I mean, they were polished. You could see your face in the shine of the buggy. It was pretty amazing. Well, it's hard to picture like a, a colorful pike buggy. Were there designs as well on those or were they just solid uh, colors, just kind of really cleanly, beautifully done? Well, actually, if you could see some of the older pictures of the shark, it actually had the crest inlaid in the hood. So the front nose of the shark actually had Pi Kappa Alpha inlaid into the crown. Wow. So it was really a beautiful buggy. And, uh, you know, they put fur on the inside. So when they took it to design, everything was... On the inside was polished, and on the outside certainly glistened in the sunlight. And it was a much different time. I hate to say that people don't care as much about buggy because it still is a huge tradition on campus, but sure, it was our every waking thought. That's the best way I can describe it. I think that's something we'll we'll get into a little bit uh, kind of later on because I am interested in your in your thoughts on that. Um, so it sounds like, right, you kind of started on the ground level, you're painting, sanding, uh, the father of modern sports analytics, perhaps. Uh, what kind of roles and how did you evolve within the team, within Pike, kind of on, in your time at CMU? And, you know, how involved were you sort of as an upperclassman? Well, as an upperclassman, I became the second safety chairman. So the first safety chairman uh, actually evolved in 1972. You know, there was the horrendous accident in 1971. Mm -hmm. uh, it was about a week before the race. A gentleman was seriously injured in a uh, practice session. And uh, Dean Swank stepped up and they said they were going to, you know, really change the safety program. And they did. And they put crash protection in place. They made sure that things that caused the accident to occur with the one organization would never repeat itself. Right. And so they did an excellent job of, uh, as I said, putting in crash protections. You always have to have brakes. So as a safety inspector, that's what you did. You made sure that everybody could pass a, a uh, moving brake test, the brake test in front of the gymnasium as they still exist today. Right. And you made sure that everybody, for example, had their harnesses on, their headgear, crash protection, and for example, I was out every night and I would verify that everybody was equipped with exactly what was required. It had to have a flashlight for push practices and things like that. How was that kind of received in the buggy community with these new rules? Was it something where people kind of accepted them? Were people trying to skirt around it? Or what was that culture like, especially kind of being safety chair and having to uh, enforce that? Well, actually, I didn't go through the first year. The first year was more difficult for some of the old organizations to accept. 
but it was essentially decreed that if you didn't participate with the program, there was a chance that we could lose Buggy forever. Sure. And at that time, there were only one other independent organization, and that was the Dorms Seat and Fringe, which was the International Club in 1969, actually uh, became the second independent organization. And then after that, followed CIA very shortly after that. So Fringe didn't actually get its name until the second year of its existence. So if you take a look at the old uh, buggy book, it was listed as the International Club and not Fringe. Huh. It was a very interesting time. As I said back in uh, 73 when I took over, it was pretty much accepted. And because I was an older upperclassman, I knew everybody on campus, and it primarily uh -huh. it was fraternity. And you knew everybody from the fraternal system. Yeah, that makes sense. So who were kind of the big players uh, during the, the time you were there? What were the kind of rivalries or excitement there in the early 70s? Beta Theta Pi was, was the organization to beat. They were most of the non-football playing athletes athletes on campus. ATO was another well-respected program, but they just couldn't seem to put together. They always failed the brake test. And of course, Sigma Nu always rolled fast, and right. we had a very contentious relationship because essentially they were disqualified in 1968 for collusion, which was the year before I got there. So they found an ATO in their tent. They were caught by a pike and another ATO and Photographs were taken and words exchanged. Sigma Nu was disqualified from the 1968 race. Those were the big players. Phi Kappa Theta, they were sort of in the background. They were fast, but not quite fast enough to win until they got Evan Hutchinson. Evan Hutchinson, good good friend of mine from a rival fraternity, and uh, Evan was about 95 pounds soaking wet. And so, you know, when you're running 120-pound drivers against somebody who's 95 pounds, that gives people a huge advantage oh, yeah. on the uphill portion. And so Evan Hutchinson really led to their rise to, to power in the early 1970s. So they won in uh, 1972 and 73 and finished second with Hutch as their driver. So that FICAP was another one. SAEs threatened with the bikes, but the bikes just couldn't roll fast enough. Those uh -huh. heavy buggies really rolled nicely back then. They were fast. Those, those, uh, those heavy buggies rolled very quickly, but you couldn't get them to go up the hills. They just, gotcha. You figure you got a buggy that weighs, the shark weighed 120 pounds. You get a 130-pound driver in there, which I think is what Rich Starkey weighed. Uh -huh. It just creates an awful lot of uh, difficulty. So, for example, when we go, we advance forward to 1984 for Pike, and they had Audrey Greenfield that weighed 68 pounds, and the buggy and Audrey weighed less than 100 pounds back in 1984. So you take 150 pounds off of a weight going up and down hills, doesn't roll quite as quickly going down, but boy, you can make up a lot of time going up the hills. And plus, you can make the buggy so much smaller. And that was one of the other huge advantages is that the aerodynamics just improved tremendously with the uh, rise of women you know, participating in the sport. I, I am interested in digging a little bit. You know, you mentioned uh, kind of with Signu, you know, how much was going on just in terms of you know, are, how crazy was everyone going trying to get secrets from one another? And, you know, they got caught there. But are there other things you kind of knew or heard of that different teams were doing to try to get a leg up, especially kind of in that time when uh, people were really eat, sleep, breathe, buggy? Oh, you would have people follow people to see what they were doing. And one of the things that made the races interesting was before 1967, well, they uh -huh. never practiced on the weekends. So they went out during the middle of the night and practiced with lanterns. And sometimes one or two groups would get together so they would have more manpower to block yeah. off the course. But 1967, the university, after they had a run-in with some local teenagers, 
they uh, decided that they were going to, the university was going to step in and have Sunday practices only. So they'd schedule six Sunday practices in the springtime for the races. And uh, that's really what allowed people to uh, see what other folks were doing. They were right. able to scale them. They were able to time them. Before then, everything was hit or miss. It was very difficult to see from the hillside, you know, when somebody left an area and when somebody made it to another known spot on the course. Well, no, what happened right immediately after that is 1967, Pika sets a record. 1968, Pika sets a record. I come in 69, and we were in disarray, and uh, really, Beta Theta Pi should have set a record, but they spun out around the turn, huh. and they won with their B push team, or A push team on their B buggy, which was pretty amazing. So the same three buggies raced for the final that raced the first day, which was uh, the SAE bike, Phi Kappa Theta, and Beta Theta Pi. Only the first day, Beta Theta Pi had their B pushers on the buggy. The second day, they had their A pushers on, you know, the double zero. And it made all the difference in the world. So it was a very interesting race. I still remember that to this day. You know, when you're a freshman, those things just stick in your mind. You never forget those things. A hundred percent. So really kind of the ability to collect information even was kind of revolutionized when you had daytime practices because even at night, if you wanted to, I suppose, it's a lot harder to collect data by lantern light and whatnot. Well, the other thing is by seeing people, you're able to see what people are doing out there on the course. So you're... So, for example, if you ever attended one of my History of Buggies, what, what happens was back in the 1950s, the ATOs learned how to heat wheels. And so there was a lamppost that was at the bottom of Hill 1. They protected that lamppost because that was the only source of power. It actually had a plug at the base. And so they were able to tap that plug, hook it up to their truck, they were the only organization that had a truck. Everybody else would come out stone cold oh. and try to run the race. So back from 1953-54 on, they were the only organization that was really heating their wheels. And what ended up happening then was, um, you know, they won nine out of ten years. The only year they didn't win, well, they were disqualified for pacing. You know, another obscene rule that exists out there. You know, how do you judge if somebody's being paced or not? You know, there's so much, you know, there's so much excitement and enthusiasm and folks running around. How are you sure which organization is helping or being helped by which person? That's what happened in 1959. That was the only year they lost up until 1963. They probably would have won that year, but they uh, overprepped their tires. And when they spun out, their tires went everywhere. And so Pika won that year too. Then after that, Beta won three years in a row, and they were really the they were the class of the group at that time, and that's why they were a chief rival of almost everybody in the early seventies when I first started. And they controlled all the uh, the positions of power within the sweepstakes organization. They really did. How was recruitment like, kind of back then, in terms of you know different fraternities, really beyond just looking, you know, for brothers? Was there much going on in terms of oh? You know, these people seem like they are cut out to be drivers, cut out to be uh, uh, pushers, whatever have you. And, you know, how much would go on with that kind of? Well, if you found a small guy, you went after him because that was the most difficult position. You can talk about pushers all you want, but as good a push team as you've got, it's difficult to make up for losing 25 pounds like the Phi Kappa Theta organization had. Evan Hutchinson right. was a, I think if anybody saw it coming, it was, when you looked at, at Phi Kappa Theta and Evan Hutchinson, that was a monumental change. And we could see that. And when I was safety inspector my second year, I actually safety inspected a young lady for CIA. She didn't get to run that year, but she ran in 1975 the year after I left, and you could see the times. Not only were they getting huge changes in technology and 
You know, for example, they had their streetcar named Desire, their Peanut, and then the Black Magic. But they really encompassed some of the unique aerodynamic aspects of buggy racing. That was one of the first organizations I saw go down the hill, and they put these little uh, pieces of string so they could watch and film the aerodynamics of the buggy as it occurred going throughout the course. So that was pretty unique philosophy. And back in, I think it was 1978, Will, what happened was we had a huge wind going up the course, and CIA ran the fastest time. So that was the first time an independent organization led the race at the end of the first day. So if they'd run, if they'd rained out, they would have won in 78. But what ended up happening was, of course, Beta Theta Pi made their huge surge from, they usually played it safe on day one and came back on day two and they trounced everybody. And CIA lost one of their pushers to their, I think it was LSATs at the time, but he was unable to participate in Saturday's race. And so that cost him. That's my version of the story anyway. <laughs> yeah, what kind of effect did that have sort of culturally on, you know, all the Greek orgs being like, oh, wow, here's this independent team. Like, how, how were people reacting to that? We started paying very close attention to them, literally watching every move they made. And there were many attempts to replicate the things that they thought were happening, but it was very difficult to see because everybody else's wheels were exposed. Theirs were hidden underneath the, you know, the cover that they put over it. So it was very difficult to, to tell. I mean, I've got some very good pictures of their, their buggies at the time. And, uh, you know, we could see what we thought was happening, but very difficult to, you know, convince yourself entirely what was transpiring, and the fact that they had female driver also helped. And that's when ATO started getting involved with uh, women drivers. I think Marianne Dwyer was one of the first drivers for them. And uh, she later became sweepstakes chairman. So a lot of the other fraternities started looking at it and saying, you know, for us to compete, that's the direction we have to go because we just can't make up the difference of now, you know, Marianne, I think, was 85 pounds, and they've taken it to another, another level of competitiveness. And sort of, right, some of these times you're talking about coming a little bit after, after your graduation and sort of this evolution with women joining and the independence and, and some kind of radical change in that sense. But also just kind of curious on a personal side, what was it that made you really kind of want to stay involved? And, you know, in those kind of early years, how much, how frequently were you uh, kind of sticking around and uh, doing things with uh, Pike or sweepstakes in general? I was the head judge in 1975, 76, 77. And then I just decided I did not want to be head judge in 1978. And then they asked me to be head judge again because they were finding a difficult time finding someone. So I was head judge again in 1979. But I was Pi Kappa Alpha's chapter advisor after graduation until 1988. So I had a very active interest in the fraternity, and I attended you know, fraternity meetings. So I was certainly involved with day-to-day -day activities of the house function. So it was very easy to still come back and participate and you know, pay attention to buggy. And then when we had the fire in the ATO truck in 1986, Ian Wichner asked me and several other people. We all sat down and met every week or so and rewrote the rules. And we got rid of things like the Godzilla dropping push bar where you would have this device laying flat against the ground or near the ground, where it could serve as a whipping action and literally hurt somebody if they happened to be on the course. So we eliminated things like that. So now the push bar had to fall within the profile of the buggy, and we changed other rules. So rules that you might think are, well, they're commonplace, but for example, we had a lot of ice skaters on our 
team. And one of the fellows who was out there was Steve Farrell. And he could skate with inline skates like crazy. So we banned the use of rollerblades or roller skates for pushing buggy. People were not doing that with buggy, but we saw there was no rule to prevent them from doing that. So in anticipation, we tried to anticipate the things that people might consider doing. And we saw difficulties with, uh, for example, plexiglass windshields. So we put Lexan in or polycarbonate in order to prevent any danger to the, to the drivers. And this, uh, this crew who, right, you said you did this over the course of a week? No, no, this, we did this, we met many weeks. This took us probably about six months. So after 1986, we introduced, uh, I believe, late, I'm pretty sure by 19, I know 1988, the rule was completely accepted throughout campus. We had a Saturday morning session with all the organizations and Ann Wichner led the charge and we went over the rules and said this is the way it's going to be. We had a lot of kickback. You talk about kickback the first time. First time we, we recognized the fact that somebody was seriously injured. This one, we forbid having solvents on right. the course. That was the, the major reason why they had the fire at ATO was they were heating solvents over an open flame and they combusted. You know, we got past the vapor pressure, and so they and they left the young lady in the buggy in the back half of the truck. Well, PiCap Alpha is one of the few organizations, because you can surmise from the conversation that might have been treating wheels. So they, they came over with fire extinguishers and helped put out the flame. But very few other people were equipped to be able to do that. And so they made it a rule that now you had to have fire extinguishers in your truck. You can't have, I think, more than a couple ounces of solvent. Primarily, that's for lubrication of the bearings. And if you disobeyed that rule, you were supposed to receive the death penalty, which was a 15-month suspension, which meant that you missed a year, which would cripple most programs. You mentioned, right, it was six months in developing all of this. Uh, was it alumni, students, uh, mixture of, of people? We were all alumni. And Sanford Rivers, who was an advisor. I think he was director of admissions at one time. And then Ann, who was in charge of sweepstakes. And I mean, I feel like it's a, in some ways, testament to buggy, right, of, of the amount of effort. But what was it that drove everyone to put so much time and effort into that? Because it sounds like a pretty serious commitment, you know, for a, and everybody's graduated, everybody has jobs, stuff like that. I think we all recognize the value of uh, buggy and sweepstakes, not only to the CMU community, but also to the undergraduates. Anybody who's ever participated in, in buggy in great depth will you know, attest to the fact that it's, it's molded them as a person. Sure. It's developed lifelong friendships. They've learned so much about things not necessarily within their curriculum. So, you know, you have, and plus it allows you to blend a multitude of talents. You get the artistic types, you get the athletic types, you get the, the geeks. So everybody can get together. And for fraternity, that's ideal situation because it allows you all to, to grow tighter as a group. You know, any project just helps people tremendously check out their strengths and weaknesses and try to grow as a team. I talked with Anne separately uh, kind of about, you know, the new rules and the, the pushbacks and, and heard some colorful stuff with that from, from her. I'm not sure, you know, you mentioned it was pretty severe with that. You know, what was that like for you? Um, you know, were you having to implement that much or was that kind of more Anne's uh, burden in that sense? No, we all backed her 100%, and we, we took it upon ourselves to go sell it to the, the group. And I know that, for example, uh, you know Mark Estes pretty well. And Mark at that time, he kicked back pretty hard, him and Tom Family from uh, Spirit. You know, they wanted no part of this program because 
especially for sigma nu. Sigma nu always had the smallest possible confined area for a buggy and driver. And it really, because we made them wear helmets now, it forced them to essentially rebuild their buggy. And they didn't necessarily like that. So a huge kickback. So say, I can imagine Estes, uh, especially a younger, more reckless Mark Estes, uh, not <laughs> taking too kindly to that. Well, Tom was pretty, he was, he was a pretty uh, dynamic individual too when he was underclass. I'm sure. I remember that session quite well. <laughs> and I love Tom. I mean, he was one of the ones that developed, you know, their technology for getting the driver over the front wheel and making sure that they could keep that very tight, structured shape mm. that they've enjoyed. And he was not happy about having to put a helmet in there besides. And, but they did it. And obviously, Spirit was so successful. Because they won in 87, 88, 89. Right. FICA won in 90. Then they won three more years. Oh, my gosh. They were unstoppable. And it was between Bowie and Matt and Tom. That was a tremendous organization. Yeah. And I guess that, you know, kind of to jump back to where we were talking about the trends, sort of an ascendancy of, uh, you know, them as an independent at that point. You know, what kind of did that do to buggy culture and the, the competitiveness there. What were some of the innovations they were doing that, that kind of put them over the top? Well, again, they had a, a connection to Soapbox Derby. And so Matt gives a very wonderful talk about how Spirit developed their culture and put together their program. And it was a lot of technology. And they were the first ones to really master the use of those pan erasers, which were the nine-inch uh, wheelchair racing wheels. So the first year they won, they won on all soapbox derby wheels. But then after that, they went to a derby wheel on the front, a couple pan erasers on the back, and they just took the, you know, you figure the, they had such a fantastic push team. And now, besides having the push team, they rolled better than everybody else. Well, well how were you going to beat that? You know, we could. We were, we were down you know, three seconds. Right. And that was the record, you know, it seemed like for a while might never get beaten. Lasted for 20 yeah. years. Just that record in 88 lasted for 20 years. It was phenomenal. And even today, you know, as, as good as PICA and SDC rolled last year, they didn't break that 206.2 time. That's still, still sitting out there. It's, that was a phenomenal team. Of course, when you got a guy who, with it was still a heavier buggy than they're pushing today, you know, he runs a fifteen point four hill one. You don't do those kind of things, and they really did have good technology. People underestimated so badly. So we've kind of we've we've gotten a good uh, you know bit kind of through your years in the history, and this is this is really fascinating stuff. Um, you know, kind of into the nineties. Other things that kind of stuck out to you about your relationship to the sport and its sort of evolution through the, the late 90s, early 2000s, and, and trends or things to you that were kind of meaningful about the way you interacted with the sport? Well, I think the biggest issue we had at the time was, you know, not only are we growing the independence, and certainly towards the late uh, 1990s, you could see the evolution of uh, fringe. Mm -hmm. You know, CIA had a waning interest. They actually didn't participate, I believe, one year. And But Fringe, you know, they adopted those Zooter wheels and really you know, hit a home run with them. And quite honestly, lurching in the background has always been SDC. Mm. And if people, you know, so I'm out there and I get a lot of time. And I get to see what their development is throughout the years. And you could almost predict they should have won a couple. Yeah. But for some reason or another, they just couldn't get over the hump. Now, since you've been around, you know that 2006, Pika finished 1-2. Two. 
but only because they made some glaring errors did they not, because they finished with the best time ever, sub 210, and they didn't break the top two. And it's only because of a mistake or two, because I guarantee if it would have been a second day, they would have they would have been neck and neck with Pike. And then 2007, people predicted they were going to win. And then that's when they their whole pro blew up. I mean, the buggy doesn't get shoved off going down the hill. They lose a wheel cover going around the turn. They miss the push bar on hill five. So they run with their B team the second day in that yellow buggy. And darn it, they get beat over the hill by Pike. B team. By Pike a B team. And so the Pike a B team, you know, gets narrowly beat and, you know, ends up, so Pike gets first and third day. So just a myriad of mistakes. And in 2008, I'll tell you what, that was, other than last year, that was one of the most gut-wrenching years ever because they destroyed that record by spirit. You know, they got a 205.5 the first day. And Pika barely beat the record at 206.09. But then Pika comes back the next day and posts this 204.35. And there you are. You're sitting on, you know, literally, we were watching the Jumbotron waiting, saying, when are you going to post this? Darn yeah. time. We're waiting for what seemed like hours. And finally, they put up, you know, <laughs> you've got... At that time, the AFIO board keeps Pike up and puts down SDC at 204.50. And it's like, the, the crowd erupts. The Pike's going crazy. Right. I went down to see Trent Sisson at the end of the race. And I said, Trent, I said, I'm sorry that you, you didn't get the win. But, you know, I think you saw Pike's last win. And, you know, when you think about it today, that's absolutely true. That was the last time. Yeah. And I think that was, I came in the year after. Um, so maybe I'm bad luck for you guys, but. Uh, no, I don't think so. I think the fact of the matter is that uh, SDC finally got everything clicking. They were able to, they could never really get, even though they should have been able to, they could never recruit the best pushers mm -hmm. on camp. And when they had their, technology up to the supreme level then they were able to do that and now they're unstoppable i mean it really it looks like spirit all over again and i think the only sad thing about this is i don't really know what's happened to spirit because it seems like they are now at a at the edge where they are ready to win yeah i mean i'm looking at some of these times especially in the in the fall here again, and from A to Z, from one to four, their buggies are the most consistent, and they're consistently fast, and they're not spinning out like they used to. And so it looks like they're putting everything together for a good run at mm -hmm. a championship. And I really like that young man who's who's leading their effort. I'll tell you what he put. I think he's on the buggy one hundred promo. And he just did a phenomenal job on that. His organization looks like it's really clicking at free roll. I'm, I hate to make predictions this early, but it's looking good for them. Interesting. Every year, you know, they're one of my favorite um, teams to call. I don't know. It's just they put out a good buggy. They have great energy. Love to see it. Um, the colors are gorgeous. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, talk about pretty buggies. I love going to design, taking pictures of their buggies. Yeah. I, I think actually something interesting to poke at, kind of what you were mentioning of their new uh, chair chairman or uh, whatever the specific role is, but, you know, how much impact and kind of what you've seen can an individual really have coming into a program to kind of turn it around like that? Because you do see these pretty rapid changes, but how do you think that is and why do you think that is? Well, you know Andy Bordick, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> Well, he was buggy chairman in uh, 1994 
built Mad Dog, they won three years in a row. So how much do you think people can have an impact? They can have all the impact, and it lasts. You know, it's just like when Bowie and Matt took over with Tom mm -hmm. and a couple other fellows back then. They set that, you know, they set that course. As long as people don't deviate from the course, you're going to be successful for maybe a decade. That's what happened to ATO. Mm -hmm. That's what happened to Pika in the early '60s. And you know, you get this run where you get some people that are there and they know what they're doing and they they develop you develop that culture and once you have you know the momentum it just keeps going for a long period of time just like SDC's on right now they just they seem to pick the right people they've had some wonderful chairmen you know and they just you can see the enthusiasm when they're out there at free roll yeah i don't know how much you get out of free roll but you can tell the groups that want to be there or having fun. I mean, I look for CIA. If they could only get a, one or two more pushers, and they had King of the Hill last year and still didn't post one of their best times. I mean, it was respectable, but it was not, you know, they're not getting down to the 207, 208 area where you really need to be year after year to be competitive. And that's a tragedy because they, they've got some enthusiasm. CIA has enthusiasm, Spirit has enthusiasm, SDC has enthusiasm. See, fringe wanes sometimes. It just looked like, like last year, like they weren't quite all there. Right. Just, and I don't know what kind of, if you get that kind of sense sitting in the booth, you know, making the broadcast, but like you said, when you can, you can tell that Spirit vibe, it just hits you. And when you have everybody participating, somehow things just go your way. I mean, I think, right, it is interesting where you have this collision of culture on top of technology, on top of motivation. And, you know, when it comes together, it's it's pretty special. I've mainly seen it through, you know, SDC. Uh, but oh, when, sure. when you have kind of that triangle, what have you, Pike last year, beyond the times they were putting up, it really felt kind of like they had that mojo again that was, you know, not there since I was, you know, maybe a freshman when there's just some aura or something kind of scary about them. But again, once you lose it, it's hard to get it back. You know, they say the most difficult thing to do is to repeat as champion, but once you've lost after being champion, sometimes that hits you so hard that you just... Yeah, why do you think it is so difficult? You can't um, regain your composure and make it back. Well, I think, for example, one of the things that doesn't lend itself is there's when there was the fraternity all on the quad, there was intense rivalry. It's hard to describe, but literally every day, you know, you'd see your your counterpart out there and you'd say, you know, I'm going to beat you. No, what, no matter what it was in. You wanted to be the, your rival. Yeah, it is interesting how, you know, some of the shifts in the Greek orgs or mm -hmm. even the fact, you know, a lot of these names you're talking about in the 70s, 80s, ATO, Beta, um, Phi Kappa Theta uh, aren't there anymore. You know, what's, what's it kind of been like to see just that landscape change? That's very painful. Because I have good friends in all those organizations. And to see the alumni come back and not really have a team to root for. Right. Some of the sometimes one of the saving graces is that the alumni will have sons or daughters who come back to other organizations. And so they're able to support the new organization that the child is with. It's extremely difficult. I'm not sure I would have the same interest in coming back year to year. My organization was not participating. It was very painful the year they were fish. Right. For example, you love the brothers that are there, but it's more difficult to support the fishing club that is Pi Cap Alpha, especially when you couldn't use all of your pushers. Right. And I mean, even I think, too, it's got to be in some ways jarring where, as you mentioned, right, you eat, sleep, breathe, buggy, and to know you put so much into a thing and then 
you know, 20 years later, it's gone or, you know, significantly diminished or, or changed. And, you know, it's almost in some ways, I feel like probably almost like a child or something, you know, building a program a certain way and then having to kind of cope with, uh, you know, how it turns out in a way that's out of your control. Well, that's true. And, but this sport of buggy is always out of your control. I mean, regardless, people think, well, the, the alumni control the organization. That is utter nonsense. I can tell you right now, there's no lack of independent thinkers on the CMU campus, and they are, they are going to do it their way. They're yes. going yeah. to do it anybody else's way. I'm telling you that right now. <laughs> yeah, not, not surprising. Um, you know, especially <laughs> 18 to 22 years old or whatever. Who are these old people uh, trying to tell me what to do? Great. So, you know, I think we covered a good bit here. There's a few kind of quick things I want to go through, just kind of some rapid fire questions and stuff like that. You know, if you had to say like five, and I don't think you do this as a part of your talk, if you had to name like five moments putting you on the spot that kind of are like the most significant developments, changes, shifts in the history of Buggy to get it to where it is today, um, to rattle off, what would you say? Boy, that's an interesting question. Uh, I think that, in my opinion, number one would have to be the university taking control of the free roll. That was, that was clearly one of the top five. And we can dispute what order these might Sure. I think that uh, certainly one that, that shook the entire world was the era from 1979 to 1981, because 79 had the first female races, okay? And that meant women were now an active participant in the races. Before, they, it was okay for them to drive, and it was okay for them to be in charge, but now they were participating, and they were going to get their own place at the table, get trophies, and earn the respect of their peers. Right? I think the other thing that took place is uh, the 1986 change in the rules because of the fire. That was extremely dramatic occurrence. Sure. And then the other thing that's difficult to pin down is the rise of the independence. Yeah. Because really that occurred. It was nice that CIA won, but CIA has never won again since 1981. But it's when Spirit put its stamp mark on the buggy history and said, We as independents are capable of taking over this race. And then the next thing you know, it became, oh, by the way, fringe, yeah. 2001, boom. So they won 2001. They should have won in 2004, except for a lost push bar. Uh, you know, they won in 2000, what was it, 10, 11? Because the 10 year was when SDC got DQ'd because of the propane heater in the truck. 2011, they won heads up on their own. That was an exciting race. That's where Fringe posted that 20508. Those were the those are the big events. Uh, you could you probably need to list ten really because the other thing was the the poor young man from Delta to Delta getting injured in '71 because that brought about a change in rules. But throughout my time frame, that pretty much summarizes those. He changes. Sure. The big cultural shifts. You've seen 52 straight race days now? Yeah, I'm trying to catch up to you. Um, uh, give me uh, 40 or something like that. But, uh, you know, we've talked about, you know, you said your freshman year is sort of a highlight, um, that, that spirit record year. But what other kind of race days or races or moments um, really jump out to you or, or stick, it, stick at you in your memory? Well, the first year I was out was, 1975, PiCap Alpha won with a 219.3. And I'd have to say that was one of the happiest days of my life. Hadn't won for three years. And so up until 2008, there had never been a three-year period where someone from 1956 through 2000 and now, I guess you could call it 10 or 11, 
hadn't seen, if they were freshmen, would not have seen a pica win. So those those kind of things stick out to you. So we hadn't won in you know, 72, 73, 74. We won in 75. The other one would have been Andy Bordick's Mad Dog, which in 94, Spirit had won in 91, 92, 93. And because of Andy's change in the buggy, his buggy won three years in a row and probably would have won a fourth year had they not substitute it with a and that's one of the dangers of having buggy chairman is because they build right. a new buggy and they think they have to run it it might not have proved itself but they run it anyway and sometimes that costs you a race and that's why I'd, i dislike immensely this thought of building a new buggy every year because they haven't already right. i feel like sdc is Sorry, I was just going to say, I think SDC's had really good discipline with that, right, in recent years where, you know, you know, have what you, yeah, wow, word soup. You know what you have with malice, and they stick with it. I'm agreeing with you. I think that's a very astute uh, analysis. If I could say anything, if you've got something that works, don't replace it until you find something much better. And unfortunately, these orgs have a tendency to just, you know, they, 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 they pride gets involved. They've got to run their new buggy. Yeah. Throw pride out. You want the win. Right. <laughs> are you prouder to run a new buggy or are you prouder to win? Because um, I imagine, too, with a new buggy, even if it's conceptually better, I'm sure there's some tuning you just need to do with experience that it's never going to be as good until you kind of learn specific little tweaks you need to make. You're absolutely correct. There's always something that could be improved on you know, the first type. That's why, you know, oftentimes they tell you you don't buy a new car till the second year. Because the new model, because they've ironed out all their bugs. They've eliminated their mistakes. Well, so just a, a couple more questions, if that's that's all right, um, to get through here. This has been much, much time as you need. Well, so, right, we are here in Buggy 100, which is pretty exciting, pretty significant, but, you know, just want to get your perspective on what it means to you, you know, having a hundred race days, having seen half of them and kind of what you find kind of the meaning in this anniversary. Well, I've been able to sit on some of the committee meetings and what I really find to be phenomenal is the effort that the university staff and the volunteers are putting into that effort. It is absolutely phenomenal. To have any tradition last 100 years is absolutely phenomenal. And there's absolutely no way that something like this, if you introduce it to a chapter or campus or whatever right now, you could never get past legal. No. So, so the fact that this thing still exists out there is such a phenomenon. And and that's why I do anything I can to help keep this uh, tradition going on. You know, I've said it on air before, but I think something so quintessentially CMU about it and that, right, it is a little bit wacky, um, but it's athletics and it is design and it is engineering and it is aesthetics and it is community and it is culture um, bottled up in such a, you know, quick um you know, it, to me, it just exemplifies so much of, um, you know, what our, our campus is about. And it's pretty, pretty cool to be able to have some, some hand in it. You know, you talked a little bit about how Spirit's looking this year. I know last year was tough for, for Pike, uh, one of my favorite races I ever called. Uh, but obviously, I know not, not the result you were looking for. But I am curious, you know, for some way too early thoughts or predictions or, or what are some of the things you think we might be seeing out there um, this year? Well, I think one of the things that people just don't really realize is the fact that uh, SIGEP is better than people understand. If they got a good push team, they'd be vying for the championship. They are that good. They are that fast. They're a lesser-known commodity. They've had some teams where if they had the push team several years ago, last year's role, yeah. they would have been up there. I can tell you that because I sit there with a stopwatch. I was going to say, right, you're still putting it down in the notebook, but uh, as much. Uh, yes, I am. 
still pretty detailed in terms of the analytics of anyone out there doing it. And kind of to that point, too, you know, where do you see the sport going over, say, the next five years, 10 years, having kind of seen its trajectory? Maybe unpredictable, but you know, do you have any predictions in, in terms of that? Well, there are p- people who still think that, you know, the, the two-minute barrier is possible. And I don't want to be a contrarian, but the fact of the matter is we are a Division three school. And I think folks have to recognize that. Right. If you were a Division one school, we would be below two minutes. We just don't have, it's difficult to get a team with five Huffmans on the team. You know, he would be the quintessential athlete at this time. I don't know if they've ever timed him on any other hill. I don't know if he wants to push any other hill, but you need him on hill two. Okay. And people say, why? Because that's your initial velocity coming off. You want the fastest person you can be there with the best. So far, he's displayed that he's the fastest pusher. And I think women should take note of that because they might say, well, you know, this girl's faster on hill one by 0.5 seconds. Yeah, but what can she give you on hill two? Because I take a look and sometimes I see, all right, I've got this very fast pusher on hill one. And then they shove off and they got this person who's larger but not as fast on hill two. They can't accelerate the buggy fast enough with their shove versus what they could do if they were two feet per second faster with the, with the run. Right. So there's a lot of places where things could be improved. Um, I don't know. It's just... It's still a very interesting race. I think one of the things of the, the fraternities are at a disadvantage is because they're no longer on the quad. They no longer get that day-to-day competition. And they no longer uh, command the best athletes. One of the things that has changed, Will, is when I was a freshman on campus, there were 515 students. And about, at that time, I would guesstimate 75% were male. Now you're 50-50 and you've got 1,500 students. So you've got a heck of a lot more males out there, but the fraternity size has shrunk. So where we might have had 60 people, now we're down to 40. To get five outstanding pushers out of 40 people is just not the same Especially when necessarily, you know, fraternities aren't necessarily your go-to place. Right. It just makes it more difficult for those orgs to thrive. Whereas if you've got SDC, Fringe, CIA, you can choose from a campus of 6,000 now. In theory, they could use grad students. That's permitted. So, yeah. Makes it no, I think that is, you know, in some ways even a testament to how much Pike did last year you know, just given some of those numbers and demographics, uh, you know, the fact they were a hair away, um, pretty impressive and kind of really makes it so every single aspect of the sport has to, or yeah, of the sport of the team has to come together to make it happen. Well, I think they had a good leader last year. I think young Mr. Barrett, I don't know how much you knew about Ryan, but his dad was involved with the Pike program back in 1987. He grew up on buggy. They had a good organization last year. I wish they would have practiced more. That's the other thing. They just, people don't practice as much as they used to. We used to, believe it or not, we had fraternity men in like 2008. They didn't drink second semester. They worked out because they wanted to win. And they wanted to set the record. And they didn't want to get beat. You know, for example, Basil Carr, who was on that team, won four years in a row. How many people out there can say they were on four championship teams in a row? It is interesting to track those changes, and it feels like, maybe not to that degree, but SDC is one of the few teams really now with that organizational discipline where, right, and they have kind of taken up the evil empire mantle, but there is discipline from top to bottom there, and it it always impresses me. It does. You should be out there at free roll. It's very impressive. They run like a well, no, I'm just saying it's well-oiled machine well. It really is. And people ought to take lessons from that. 
if you want to win, that's what you have to do. You have to emulate what the best does. I think one, I think last thing I'd, I'd like to kind of pick at, you know, we've talked about a whole bunch of stuff, you know, your role within Buggy Forever. I'm kind of interested what you see as your legacy or what you would like kind of your legacy with the sport to sort of be known as or uh, as we kind of look back and reflect. Well, I think as we all get older, we get more mellow. And I think what we try to do is we try to make sure that the sport lives on so that if you did have a place, your your association with the sport would be forever remembered. It's like why you have a Hall of Fame. You know, it doesn't do any good to have a Hall of Fame if the sport ceases to exist. Yeah. And the same thing holds true for, for Buggy. You know, I take pride the fact that I was the, the second and third safety chairman, mm. that I was head judge all those years. And those were some very controversial years, but yet we always seem to manage to get through it and respect ourselves as, you know, competitors. And I think that's more than anything else. And quite honestly, I was taken back by the, by the awards because my motto has always been, Nothing's impossible if you don't care who gets credit for it. Right. And, you know, it's not really about individual achievements, but, you know, what, what can we do as a group to make sure that this sport that we all love continues on in perpetuity? You know, for example, I take great pleasure, and I think I told you today, I, I enjoy watching these races as they've evolved on CMU TV. And I'm not just saying this because you're here, but the quality of the presentation has improved so much. The fact that you get, you seem to be, you know, pulling out the, exactly the right things. Okay, what's the stop sign time? To me, that's important. I want to know that, right? And, and you're saying that right as it's happening. And that's, that's information that the, the avid buggy enthusiast wants to know. And you're, you're giving us that information. And it's, it's really cool. Well, I appreciate so, it. You know, we've had some bumps in the road getting to this point, but uh, we have, I think, a really good team and have had a really good team the past few years. Uh, you know, for me, I'm really grateful I got the opportunity as a student. Um, it opened a lot of doors for me. I know I think WRCT has really reduced their student sports stuff, but, you know, uh, would always want, you know, students to be involved. But I do think it's it's fun having this product as it is. And you know, that's part of what prompted me to to try and put this series together, right, is, um, you know, I think you do a wonderful job with the history of Buggy. You know, there's so much out there with BAA, but sometimes it's nice to just kind of hear a person talk and reflect in a personal sense um, on the sport. Well, I don't know if you've got to see anything that Brian's put together, Brian Arshman, but boy. He's doing a phenomenal job on the Buggy Alumni Association. I mean, he's taken, you know, three to four year snippets and just killing the presentation. I mean, what if? Oh, he is he is fantastic. He's done a phenomenal job. Jeremy Tuttle did a great job when he was, you know, president of the Buggy Alumni Association. Of course, Ben is always there. He really is stepping forward this year and leading the Centennial Committee. He's a phenomenal individual. Yeah, he has, you know, it is, he's done amazing stuff and made my job with all this <laughs> so, so much easier. So I've thanked him off the record, but <laughs> on the record, um, he's done a lot of, you know, what has made the, the broadcast more successful and professional and all the lot. And, you know, we could keep going. There's a probably a whole another hour of just names of people to thank for their contribution to the sport. Um, you know, well, I'll be happy to name them because staff Casey, um, it goes on. I was going to say, I do like your idea of a, a buggy hall of fame, uh, might be to that point would be fun to, <laughs> fun to put together. Certainly, uh, a first balloter, uh, here with, uh, with you, Tom. So, you know, that is, pretty much all I had. I appreciate you so much taking the time out tonight. This was the first one of these I recorded. So, you know, I appreciate you being my guinea pig. But I think this is some really interesting stuff. I appreciate you asking me. It's really an honor to talk to you. I, 
I see you so much on TV. It's, it's good to finally get to talk to you personally. And there we go. Episode one is a wrap. Plenty more to come from this. Talk to the Spirit and SDC dynasties, uh, the Buggy Alumni Association, how that came to be, CMU staff, what role they play, and much, much more. Uh, but please give us feedback, um, comment, subscribe, however that works. Uh, if you have ideas for buggy characters, stories you'd like to tell, people we should interview, I would love to hear that. Uh, you can find all the contact info on cmubuggy.org and uh, let us know how we're doing. Thank you so much for listening and we'll catch you next time.